Welcome to Fireside with VoxGig, a podcast for professional and aspiring public speakers. I'm your host, Richard Roger, the founder of VoxGig.com, an online community for speakers and event professionals. We're here to help you get the most out of speaking, organizing, exhibiting, and attending. In each episode, we sit down for an intimate fireside chat with people in the public speaking community to learn how they have mastered the art of getting up on stage and speaking in front of an audience. If you're an aspiring speaker or just want to improve your onstage performance, this podcast will help you learn from some of the most accomplished and interesting professional conference speakers. And finally, before we begin, a quick shout out and thank you to simplecast.com, first and last word in podcasts, who have kindly come on board as our first ever sponsor. In this podcast, I talk to the heavy metal bad boy of open source himself, John O'Bacon. We talk about the power of community and how things have changed in the world of open source since the early days. We also talk about how, as a speaker, it's important not to forget that you're part of a community and you may, in fact, even be building one. An important part of that is not just what happens on stage, but also what happens between talks, what happens online. If you're just starting out as a speaker and you're an introverted coder, like me and Jonah once were, then you're sure to find this podcast really, really useful and interesting. John, welcome to the Fireside with Box Gig podcast. It is fabulous to have you here. Yeah, thank you, Richard. It's great to be here. You started your speaking career as a rock star. Tell us how that happened. We had an opportunity to go and play a gig at the Ruskin Arms in London, which for non-heavy metal or non-Iron Maiden fans will not know this, but this is where the band Iron Maiden started out. They used to play a ton of shows down there. It holds a special place in the mythology of Iron Maiden. So we're very excited to go down and play the Ruskin Arms. And we went down there and we set up and everybody was telling us, our promoter was telling us, oh, you can have a ton of people there. It's going to be great. There was about three people there. Wow. Awesome. <laughs> literally, this sounds like I'm, I'm exaggerating. One of which literally had a dog. It was three people and a dog, and a dog. watching us play. But it was cool to go down there and you know play the show. And I remember going to the bathroom and peeing and I saw some graffiti on the wall, which was from the guitarist from Iron Maiden. So they oh, okay. Well, that's pretty not cool. Yeah. Upgraded that place at all? I think I don't think it's there anymore. I think they demolished it. But uh, it was it was cool. But it was a disappointing gig. How many people were in your band? That band was uh, four of us, and then I um, I won't bore you with all the details. But I moved to the US and I'd written an album's worth of material, um, and I wanted to put together a band over here. And I actually ran into one of my heroes, this guy called Chris Contas, who plays drums in Machine Head. Yeah, in an airport, and we completely hit it off. And he was like, "Dude, I know some people I can hook you up with for musicians." So his best friend Ben Gibbs um, played drums, and then another guy, Jim, who used to play in a band that I was a big fan of, ended up joining on guitar. We ended up playing a ton of uh, gigs in this area, um, which is you know an epicenter of metal is the Bay Area. So it was a lot of fun. Oh yeah, absolutely. So uh, let me get this straight: there was more people on stage than in the audience. Yes, yes, <laughs> considerably so, and uh, and. We thought the gig sucked too. So <laughs> you got to start somewhere, right? So I mean, this is <laughs> you got to start somewhere. Yeah. This is the thing about public speaking, right? People have this. Uh, people have Tony Robbins in their head, right? And that's what they think. They think they have to be Tony Robbins when they step on stage. No, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. and and if you're just starting out at, at a local meetup, you don't have to be Tony Robbins. No, just do it. Just go do something. What's interesting to me about public speaking? I remember when I started out, and I was. Getting into the open source community in the UK, I was about 19 or 20 at the time. And I was just speaking at, um, I went to go and speak at a couple of local kind of Linux user groups. And 
I had all of these preconceived notions about what you're supposed to talk about and have really cool looking slides and detailed technical detail, all this kind of stuff. And I realized relatively quickly that a presentation is something that you can really make your own and you can really shape it. And you can add your own signature to it quite significantly. And practice really does make perfect. And I think being able to say, you know what, for this one, I'm going to keep it fairly focused and fairly conservative. But for some other ones saying, I'm going to try something insane and see what we can come up with and see how the audience responds. That's how you get better in my mind. Just experiment, try new things. Did you find there was a difference between getting up on stage uh, with a guitar? Were you like the lead singer or the bassist? Yeah, singer and guitarist, yep. So is there a difference in nerves between getting up on stage to a gig and speak? Yeah, there was more nerves to me for playing gigs because there's four of us. You know, when I'm speaking, I'm in complete control of my own destiny, right? It's up, it's mine, for li- mine to lose. Yeah. Uh, unless the AV goes wrong or something along those lines. But with gigs, particularly when you play noisy heavy metal, you know, and you can't really hear each other very well because you've got, you know, some stoned guy on the mixing desk trying to keep things going. <laughs> you know, it's just a lot more variables for error. But I don't, I never really felt particularly nervous with gigs or speaking now. When I do a really big one, then you, you feel the, the quivering a little bit. <laughs> but, well, you need it a little bit, right? You can't, yeah. I mean, you need a little bit of adrenaline to, to kind of make it yeah. happen. Yeah, exactly. But I think part of this is just, you know, the more you do it, the more you get used to it as well. So, John, I love your career history, right? So you, you start off as a coder, but then you started writing and then you ended up working for some really cool organizations um, mm. like the XPRIZE. So you have like yeah. a reserve seat on a rocket ship to the moon. Pretty <laughs> dirty type frame. I, uh, I wish. Actually, I don't wish. I'd be terrible in space. Uh, they were a really interesting organization to work for because you talk about great speakers. He's a Diamandis who founded XPRIZE. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, he is, to me, one of the greatest speakers out there because he, his enthusiasm is infectious. And uh, people would often say, like, what's he like you know, in the office? And he's just as enthusiastic and as focused as he is in the office as he is on stage. And one of the things I love about his speaking style is he really weaves together a story and is very data-driven. Like If you read any of his books, it's backed up with pages and pages of data. And I, and I love that. He gives incredibly compelling presentations. And what I love about it is, and what I've tried to do this in my own work, and I don't think I'm anywhere near as good as Peter, is really understanding how to craft a message. Like one of the things he said to me was, you don't have to have all the answers. You just need to be able to package up the right answers in a way that your audience can understand it. And that to me gets to the heart of great public speaking. And you know, he's got a point of view around exponential technology and abundance and all that kind of stuff. And he spent years refining that message. And I think that's a really valuable learning lesson is not so much the slides and the delivery, just how do you construct your message in an interesting way? You got to create a um, like an earworm, right? As a song that stays in your head. You got to create like right. a, a brain worm, right? I guess something like that. Yeah, how I think you, so. But how 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 do you do it? The way. I approach it is I never start with slides. I always start with, you know, who are my audience and what is the thing I want them to understand? You know, there's all of these theories around people take three things away from a presentation. I'm not sure I buy a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, Mm. To me, the key thing in my mind is where do I want to get to? What's the message I want to get across? So for example, the big message that I'm talking at a lot of conferences and about is that communities are going to be kind of the future of how we do business, that the relationship between brands and people are changing, you know, and young people are growing up in an environment with social technology, like 85% of the millennials have got a smartphone, 6 billion devices out there. 
And that's changing our expectations of how we engage with each other and with, with companies. But there's a lot of like nuance and detail wrapped up in that overall message. So the way I like to think of it is, I know where I want to get to. Now, how do I layer the journey so it's easy for people to understand each piece as you build on it? And then how do you tell stories and use examples to kind of illustrate that? And the way I do it is just to basically open up a text editor and break it down essentially point by point. And then that broadly maps to the slides that you're going to start presenting. But I find that I can't just jump to slides. I have to walk through that journey first and make sure that I've got to click as a presentation is a linear workflow. I've got to be clear in that message first. And then I use that as an opportunity to bounce it off friends as well and say, does this point make sense? Does this point make sense before you start investing in building out a ton of slides? It's a good example of why if you just if you just start with a like an empty PowerPoint, that's really hard because yeah. you haven't done that homework, right? You haven't done that prep. Well, yeah. And I think the other thing as well is, you know, you want your presentation to be interesting and fun, right? So you're going to want to put some jokes in there, some some levity in there to kind of keep things moving forward. And I find, certainly for myself, I can't plan that. You know, So when I'm producing my presentation plan, I won't plan for gags. Uh, I'll plan for the, the yeah. message that I'm delivering and, and how I develop and build on it. But then as I'm going through, I'll think, ah, this could be kind of a funny little aside to kind of put in there. Like I, on the last one I did, I can't remember how I got to this point, but I ended up meeting at a conference, a Tom Cruise lookalike. Okay. Uh, and, okay. and a friend of mine took a picture. This guy was creepy, like creepily like Tom Cruise. Had, had the same sort of stature as well, I guess. Same. Yeah. He was like pint size and he had yeah. exactly the same, you know, facial expressions and his laugh was exactly the same. Yeah, he was, I think he's called like, you know, San Diego Tom Cruise on Instagram <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> and he was it. really good. The guy it. was very talented, but you know, you hear about all the Scientology stuff about Tom yeah, Cruise. You yeah. think, okay, this is a bit weird. And I can't remember, what, but I weave that into the presentation to kind of break the mood a little bit because I've been through kind of a lot of heavy data and, and you know, point making. And then I think those bits of levity are, are good, but you can never plan for those. So No, no. Uh, and I mean, they're, they're super hard, right? It's, it, to, when it happens to me, it, it, it's, it just kind of happens in the moment. Yeah. Like I've never yeah. planned a joke. I wouldn't even presume. <laughs> to try and say something funny. Uh, I think that would just bomb. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting you say that because I generally don't plan jokes, but sometimes if I want to, obviously, if you need slides to make a visual gag or something along those lines, then you need to plan Yeah, it. okay. That can work. Yeah. I don't tend to do a lot of the visual stuff. Like that Tom Cruise thing was actually a bit of an exception because sometimes it just doesn't work. <laughs> And if sure. you get on stage yeah. and you read the audience, you're like, this is a very humorless group of people. <laughs> and you know you've got your Tom Cruise slide coming up. You're like, oh God, this yeah, is going to like, oh, wait, wait, until, wait until they see the kittens and the unicorns. Right. Uh, yeah, right. And you're in exactly. trouble. Okay, so you, you've worked at this um, community building, mm. this community aspect of technology for quite a long time and, and in different places. And now, now you're helping companies do it as well. Yep. What's the intersection of the traditional conference scene and developer meetups? I guess the importance of it in the wider mm. tech business world has only really come to the fore in the last five or six years. The yep. importance of community where you're starting to see people have... You know, there are now community managers and it's a recognized profession. Yeah, yeah. How do these things all intersect? Because um, it still it still feels like the pieces are assembling. Yeah, I think they are. I mean, what's been fascinating is that the evolution of communities. I describe it as a as a renaissance. 
you know, when the Renaissance happened, people were doing things and then they started writing them down and, and building recipes and blueprints for how to do maths and writing and literacy and all those different pieces. And that's starting to happen now with communities. Like there's, we've been building communities for hundreds of thousands of years, but in a digital setting, we've been doing it for many years, but we haven't really been documenting and refining the art and the science of how to do that. So I think we've, we've and that's a big chunk of what I try to do is, is, and one of the reasons why I actually started consulting was because I wanted to expose myself to a broader range of, of companies and problems and verticals so I could learn as much as I could and then write it out into books like People Powered that I just released. So to me, we're still in a transitionary state as we're figuring this stuff out. And so anybody who claims that they've got all the answers to this stuff, they just don't. Yeah. You know, everybody is, and many people are moving this science forward. I think the relationship between events and especially online communities is very close and it's very important for a few different reasons. One is that there is just certain things in human communication in person that are just missing online. You know, like there is body language, there is tonality, there is, you know, it's, it's a high bandwidth environment to be sure. in, right? When, when you're chatting to people. And there's, there, there is just a set of social cues and experiences that are exchanged. You know, there are many of us have seen this where you meet people online and you kind of get on well at a functional setting, but you meet them in person, you immediately hit it off and you become friends. Yeah. So I think you need both. The tricky thing is that events are historically kind of expensive, especially to run, but if you want to travel to go and speak at events. And the big criticism that I've had is that and particularly for people who run meetups, is that they'd organize meetups. Let's say you have a meetup once every three weeks, and then there'd be absolutely no discussion or interaction between those meetup members in between those right. events. Yeah. You know, and I, I used to, I, I actually don't go to a huge amount of meetups, but when I do go to meetups, that happens all of the time. And I contrast it to, for example, when I set up the very first group that I ever started, the, the Linux user group in Wolverhampton in, in the UK. And we had a mailing list and we'd have meetings every two weeks. We'd go down the pub and have a curry and talk about Linux and technology. But then in between, we'd continue the conversation on the list. And I think that that fusion of in-person online is where the magic happens. And, and I was actually, weirdly, um, as a coincidence, I, uh, the CEO of Meetup was in town in San Francisco last week. Um, and he dropped me a note and we went and had a coffee. And one of the things I was saying to him was, you know, I think that like there's tools in, baked, for example, inside of Meetup for online discussion. They've been doing that for years, but that's not where people go. Like people have their own Slack channels or their own forums yeah, or whatever it might yeah. be. That's where they live. They're not going to go and hang out in a forum on, on, on Meetup.com. So to me, that fusion of those two is really important because the online allows you to scale. It allows you to continue the discussion in a way that is not massively distracting away from someone's day job and their family. But the in-person is where those friendships and those social connections are really forged. Taking this from a speaker perspective, um, I mean, okay, if you're a community builder, doing that work and finding ways to enable that and, and encourage it and, and grow it, you often hear people say communities aren't made, they're grown. Yeah. But um, just coming back to, I'm an individual speaker and I'm, I started doing a few talks and I have a few blog posts. Maybe I'll even write a book one day. Don't, don't do that. There's, there's no money in it. Oh, it's hard work. <laughs> definitely no money in it. <laughs> I love the stories. I, my first book uh, was more useful to me as, uh, as a business card for getting consulting gigs. Oh, yeah. For it was, sure. it was, I think it was like less than the minimum wage I worked at. <laughs> I got for something. 
So, so I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I see a lot of that, right? Where you, you, you go to a conference and there's multiple tracks, there's a lot of speakers mm. and you might see a speaker pop up at a number of different conferences, but they, and it sounds awfully ego, egotistical to say it, but I mean, should they be thinking about building a personal community around themselves? Around themselves? It's a great question. And I think, uh, I think there is an opportunity to do that in many cases. I think, uh, t- to me, there's nothing wrong with building a community around an individual. I think it's about how you go about doing it. Yeah. I'm not going to profess that I don't have an ego. We all have an ego. Sure, of course um, we can. Yeah. To, to varying degrees. <laughs> but there are some people who, you know, I have a general philosophy of like, if I'm really good, other people will tell other people about me. You know, I shouldn't be going and telling it. The kind of people who are constantly banging on about how great they are and how they know all of these people and how they've done all oh, these yeah, amazing yeah, things. Yeah. It's just, it just sounds desperate. So I think if you're one of those people who tends to over-egg the pudding in terms of your own capabilities, I think that that, bear, that runs the risk of it being the wrong kind of an unhealthy community. But I think if, for example, you've got a, a, a point of view and a perspective, you know, we talked about Peter Diamandis earlier on, He's got a whole community wrapped around him. And I think that's good because he is really pushing a, f- a point of view, which is, you know, technology is exponential. And if we think about what's happening in 10 years from now, it helps us to think bigger and we can do, you know, bigger and more interesting things. So I think that can work well. The tricky thing is, I think, for a lot of speakers is typically when you're speaking, you're, you know, that's one thing that you're doing, right? You're, you have a day job and you've got other things that are going on. Um, and many companies are pretty suspicious or nervous about speakers that they're on their payroll mm. uh, going and promoting themselves as opposed to talking about the company and the product and whatever else. So I think you've got to be really careful. If you're a lone ranger, like I am, for example, I run my own business, I could do that if I wanted to. But if I was working for you know, Zoom... And I was speaking about how great Zoom is. That'd be a whole different ballgame. But there's a lot of opportunities. It's easier and it's than ever to build communities because we've got access to a lot of great, you know, content and guidance, um, and the tools are more readily available and accessible than ever before. So there's certainly a lot of opportunity to do that. It sounds similar to, um, you know, if you've if you if you've done some open source um, or you participate in open source. It, it sounds like a similar, right? A similar sort of thing. You often and you often end up talking about open source if you do it, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So the two, the, they they definitely converge. You know the, the the general philosophy that I've got here is instead of like trying to sell someone on you, just do interesting things and talk about yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And it's easy for me to say that because you know I'm making I'm I'm making a broad assertion that everybody can go out and do interesting things and it's hard for some people to do that like if you're just starting out in your career you haven't done a lot of speaking you're pretty nervous you don't 100% know what you're doing and you don't have a lot of opportunities to do interesting things then it's difficult to kind of get that 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 leg up but you know I'm I'm the I'm the eternal optimist I think there is opportunity buried in everything and I think if you look hard enough you'll be able to find all kinds of opportunities to you know there are thousands of technology communities out there looking for help. There are, you know, there's so much data out there that you could put a really interesting talk together about a new analysis of something within the world that you're working in. There's all kinds of things I think we can do. Let's just turn to open source because there's definitely this pathway where somebody starts participating in an open source project and ends up advocating for it, or at least running workshops or helping people, or they, they write their own small tool to begin with. And then it, it generates right. a little community. There's a really great uh, documentary that's just come out 
about Vue.js and how that all happened. Oh, uh, which I really? highly recommend. Yeah, it's just come out in the last week. Oh, cool. Evan Yu, who's the, the, the guy who kind of put all that, that all together. What's interesting is to, is to think about how, and you would have seen this because you've, you've seen so much of the history of, this, of these movements, how open source communities have, have changed over the last mm. 20 years. Is it, is it easier or more, or more difficult? So, you know, you start from my first exposure to it would have been people like Eric S. Raymond and the Cathedral of yep. the Bazaar essay, which is a very technical view that, uh, you know, all, all bugs are, are shallow with many eyeballs and it's just a, yeah, almost a mathematical equation. And there's not much of an idea that actually the thing that makes them shallow is the cohesive community right. that enables the many eyeballs. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that's, that view is sort of missed. You know, up to uh, the thing that really got me going on was Carl Fogel's great book, Open Source Development with CVS. Yeah. Which I'm actually staring at right now. Right. <laughs> but I haven't touched in years, but it was hugely inspirational, which was much, half of the book was about the community. Yeah. Stuff. And the other half was the tutorial on CVS. Thank God those days are over. Right, right. So how have things changed in the time that you, since you've started to now? It's a great question. I mean, I think things have changed interestingly in a number of different ways. I mean, first of all, the open source community is huge, right? It's 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 a it's a normal part of business, and with that, you attract different types of people and different companies. You know, back in the early days when I got started, pretty much everybody who was in open source was a believer. They were a fully partisan proponent of open source. So people lived and breathed it. Like it wasn't just something that you, if you, if you were lucky to do it at work, uh, you didn't just do it at work. You also did it in, in your evenings as well. And now, particularly since we've seen uh, the explosion of open source in the professional world, you know, with organizations like the CNCF and the Linux Foundation and the Eclipse Foundation, you know, helping companies to get together to collaborate on projects like Kubernetes and TensorFlow and, and all of those pieces. There's a lot of professional you know, enterprise engineers out there who work in an open source way, but aren't necessarily doing any of that stuff. Or they're not necessarily super high proponents or they're, they're doing a lot of that stuff in their spare time. It's just their day job and that's what they do. And I think that's changed the tonality a little bit of it. You've still got the, the hardcore fans as well, of course. But the other thing as well is I think we've seen a breakaway from mm. massively uh, kind of centralized projects. Like if you looked historically, if you looked at projects like Apache and yeah. Debian, yeah. You know, these were big organizations with governance boards, highly curated. You had to use their infrastructure and their workflow and all these different pieces. And what we've seen with the evolution and the growth of GitHub is a, a move away from that. And many, lots of just GitHub repos set up where people shove in pull requests and build code together. And they don't have this comprehensive governance and leadership and all this kind of stuff. They're just much more freeform. And I don't think one is better than the other. They're just both different elements and different aspects of how we do open source. And I think what has happened as well is because of the growth of open source, it's opened up other challenges. Like with so much open source being built, for example, continuous integration and, and deployment has become a real big thing and the formalization of the software development lifecycle. So, you know, it's, uh, we've seen the prof professionalization of a movement and that's resulted in better technology, but also I think for some people, the fun has been taken out of it a little bit. Right. Yeah. There is a dark side, isn't there? I mean, there's, there's open source burnout where people, right. You know, they, they, they just spend their entire weekends trying to solve uh, help requests and, and issues. And, and, you know, yeah. you, you get people sort of just leaving the community. Yeah. It's tricky, I think, because a lot of people who are involved in open source are somewhat introverts. Yeah. And I think in the same way that we've seen with the, 
With the impact of social media, you've had people who have never had a loudspeaker before having access to a loudspeaker. And some people have wielded that loudspeaker with dexterity and maturity and respect and used it well. And some people don't know how to deal with that loudspeaker and they become idiots and trolls and, and all the rest of it. And I think we've seen kind of similar things happen in open source where, you know, as it's grown, you've seen some people be able to handle that growth um, in a respectful way. And some people have used it as a platform for abuse. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's just all of these intermingling elements of, of, of society and human behavior kind of coming together. And my philosophy is with all of these big changes in society, the pendulum always swings too far in one direction. And then eventually it swings back. Right. So we're going to see, I think the crazy time in open source in my mind was kind of like 2005 to 2010. And I think we've seen things calm down to much more of a predictive slant and things are a little easier now. Which is hopeful, which is hopeful. It always works out in the end. <laughs> yeah, it certainly does. And would you say that um, open source has become more, oh, I don't know, people powered? Do you like that segue? Do you like that? I like that. I like that. <laughs> that is one of the <laughs> finest segues I've ever heard. So Jono has written a little book. Tell us more about your book. Yeah. So um, I wrote this book called People Powered, uh, How Communities Can Supercharge Your Business Brand and Teams. And um, I wrote this book for a very specific reason. Many years ago, I wrote a book called The Art of Community, which was like a hardcore practitioner's guide for how you build very technical communities. And since I started consulting full-time about four years ago, a lot of clients would reach out to me and say, hey, I've bought your book, People Powered, uh, uh, The Art of Community. I'm looking forward to reading it. And you know, The Art of Community is like in two editions. It's 600 pages. It's a very heavy Good weight. Yeah. Really? <laughs> yeah, it's massive. Wow. Yeah, it's a heavyweight wow, book. Okay. And you know, the average executive or founder or entrepreneur or someone who's not necessarily as you know, a practitioner, they're just not going to read that. Um, and they're going to need something that I think provides a much higher level, but very focused overview of the value of communities and how you build them. So what People Power does is it does three things. One is that it provides an overview of, of not just technical communities, but all communities. You know, I break it into three different models, consumer, champion, and collaborator. And then I walk through you know, what communities are, many examples of, how, of, of communities that work well, such as you know, uh, Hit Record and Salesforce and Fitbit, Harley Davidson, Procter & Gamble, all of these different examples. Um, and then, so it gives a kind of a good overview of, of, of the value of communities and why someone might want to care, but it's an objective overview. It also talks about you know, the risks and the downsides of doing this kind of work. The second thing that it does is it provides a really comprehensive framework for how to build a community strategy from how do you define your value and the mission to how do you build out a set of annual objectives and convert those down to tactics. You know, how do you do incentivization and events and build growth and engage your members and things like that. And then the third piece is it shows how to take all of that and integrate it into a business. You know, how do you hire the right people? What does success look like? What are the maturity models that you should be focusing on and things such as that? So, you know, it's a business book. So it's a relatively short book. It's about 280 pages, but it was fairly carefully crafted to be both high level and very pragmatic and able to be objectively applied. Because if there's one thing that bugs me about business books is that a lot of them, 
you know, a chapter will explain one thing and drown you in 30 pages of examples. Oh, and, you, God, you know, yes, yeah. and you're like, I get it. Okay. I've, I've, I've yeah. cracked the case. I don't need any more examples. <laughs> it's like, this, this, is, this, is, this is an article. This is in the book. Right. <laughs> exactly. Um, and um, I didn't want people power to be that. And I was very explicit when I was talking to publishers. Like, I did not want this to be just some generic high, you know, high level thing. I wanted it to really go into a good level of depth. And that was the hardest element of writing the book was... How do you make it high level and accessible, but really with a lot of, you know, very pragmatic, applicable detail? And that's, that's you know, and I'm, so far it seems to be doing reasonably well. People seem to be happy with awesome. it. Awesome. Yeah. Well, best, best, of, best of luck with it. It's, um, Thank you. It certainly sounds like if you're an organization that is about to start taking this stuff seriously, um, it's almost like right. a handbook. Right. Uh, I, I can speak from personal experience. This, this stuff is super powerful. It's, it's, it's crazy when it works. Um, oh, yeah. At the moment, I'm doing a, a traditional kind of SaaS startup. Uh, but my previous company cool. um, previous company was four guys who had failed startups who had to pay the mortgage. <laughs> and we set up a consulting company and just kind of randomly s- spoke to the right people and got the right encouragement to run our own conference. Cool. At first, we kind of set up a little meetup and just really... Inadvertently, I, I don't know, because we weren't business guys, kind of focused on the community stuff first. Right. And it yeah. really works. It's amazing. Yeah. And we hired, we, like, we built a company of 150 engineers and never once, never once used a recruiter. Yeah. Because of yeah. the power of community. And it's just awesome. I mean, I, and I, I, it's hard for me to distill it. Yeah. Um, so I'm glad you wrote a book about it because yeah. <laughs> this stuff works. Well, and, and part of my hope is that, you know, you're a, a really good example here, Richard. Like, you know, you've seen it work for you is that you can then, when talking to someone else, you can, you can say, go read this book. It'll, it'll, give you, it'll give you the grounding that you need to know for how to see the value of it and how you can apply it. You know, I think there is enormous value in communities. It doesn't just generate tangible value like people provide support and run events and create content and all kinds of things. But it also produces this really powerful intangible value of people feel more connected and they build a sense of belonging and they feel part of and that's a good that's a foundation. Powerful. I mean it's one of those competitive moats, right? That VCs are right. banging on about. Yeah. <laughs> Except it's very hard to I mean I, I mean I, and I I have I have experience subsequently of pitching VCs where you're trying to explain this stuff and then they're kind of looking at you going, Yeah, yeah, but sh- show me your show me your models in Excel. Right. <laughs> well, you know, let me explain to you the narrative of community building. Well, and I'm 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 pleased to see as well that I think this is starting to change. I think VCs are increasingly I, I have a pretty common set of relationships with VCs because a lot of them will will send their portfolio companies to me as clients. And um there's definitely a sea change happening. Uh, I think where a lot of them are looking at ecosystem related companies um, or community companies and saying, there's huge value in this. And this is a market differentiator. Um, and I think one of the finest examples of that is a VC called Flybridge, a friend of mine, Jeff Buscan. Mm, okay. Uh, he's a professor at Harvard Business School. And we co authored a piece for Harvard Business Review about the competitive advantage of, of, um, of communities. And I was thrilled to do it because it's always been a bit of a bucket list item for me to get something on HBR. And we wrote this oh, piece. Oh, yeah, yeah. We had a lot of time really kind of crafting this piece. And the response to it's been incredible because I think it was the, an introduction to this whole um, topic. And the, probably the highest demographic of people that I've seen who've responded to that is VCs. I had a ton of VCs reach out and just say, 
Can you tell us more about yeah. this? This is really interesting. Yeah. So I'm glad that the sea change is happening. There is. It's, I mean, it, it, it is. We see we see a lot of VCs now hiring event managers and starting yeah. to take that sort of thing way, way more seriously. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think it's about time to wrap up. Um, I want to go back to I want to get back to your career as a as a, as a heavy metal guitarist, uh, which uh, which appears to be starting up again. Uh, it is, so you're based, it is you're based just... in uh, Southern California, right? I'm, I'm in Northern California. Northern California, okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you, I, which which I don't know all that well, but if you're if you're down Los Angeles way and you're playing in. Um, What's that um, bar? Whiskey Go Whiskey Go Whiskey Go Go. Yeah, yeah that's oh, yeah. nice. Lemmy's bar. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Let me know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I would love to. Awesome. I would. I would love to go and play the whiskey. Actually, a friend of mine who, uh, somewhat amusingly, uh, I was introduced to him through a, another friend of mine. Who's this English guy who lives in the town that I live in? He plays the whiskey all the time with his band. Oh, wow. he? Oh. he just joined a band called Carcass recently, so playing the guitar, which is a legendary. Oh, John, there you go. That's the real bucket list item. Right, <laughs> the whiskey. <laughs> that, that is definitely the real bucket list item. So, but isn't I mean, isn't heavy metal one of the one of those? You know, it's a great example of one of those original communities, right? Shared oh. interest and um, metal. Yeah, metalers are super tight with each other as well. Yeah, you know, yeah. Um, you know, you get this reputation that heavy metal people are these drunken idiots who start fights and don't take showers. And um, I've never seen any problems at a metal show. The heavy metal people are super nice to each other, very friendly. So, so they're good, good idiots who community. don't take don't take showers. Yeah, they're the shower thing <laughs> is less consistent. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, fantastic let, let us leave it there best of luck um, get on get on the New York Times bestseller list um, I, hope, <laughs> I hope to see your book in um, in an airport soon thank you thank you Richard it's been fabulous really really fun yeah this was a lot of fun thank, thank you so much me on. appreciate it wonderful thank you so much for listening just a few things before the embers fade and we wrap up another episode of the Fireside with VoxGig podcast. You can find notes and links from this podcast at voxgig.com slash podcasts. We also publish a weekly newsletter on public speaking, selecting the best advice and techniques from some of the world's greatest speakers, both ancient and modern. Rhetoric is an old and revered art, not especially easy to master, but a skill like any other and one you can also learn. Visit voxgig.com slash speakers to subscribe. If you've enjoyed this fireside chat, please consider subscribing to our podcast. Please also leave a review that helps us make this podcast even better. If you'd like to contact me directly, please email me, richard at voxgig.com. If you'd like to be counted as a supporter, just let me know and I'll add you to our supporters page. And one final reminder to check out our sponsor, simplecast.com, who helped make this podcast possible. Till next time, remember, take a deep breath, pause, and step forward.